Namaste and welcome to the Modern Mystic Podcast where we are exploring the mystical in the mundane and the magic in the present moment, bringing you ancient tools and technologies into modern day living, yoga, mythic, and healing conversations with expert and visionary powerhouses sharing their stories and secrets with you to help you live an inspired life. My name is Kill Kenny, the host of the Modern Mystic Podcast, and today I am so truly jubilant to be having Shauna Shapiro, a best-selling author, professor, clinical psychologist, and internationally recognized expert in mindfulness and self-compassion. She has spent two decades studying the benefits of mindfulness and compassion, publishing over 150 papers and three critically acclaimed books. Her TED Talk, What You Practice Grows Stronger, has been viewed over 3 million times, and it's so good. So if you haven't heard that or seen that, check that out. Welcome, Shauna, to the Modern Mystic Podcast. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. I am so looking forward to your answer, which is what does it mean to you to be a modern mystic? Mm, I think my intention with the scientific research I've been doing for the last few decades has really been to bring some of these spiritual teachings into very accessible tools and practices um, to really support everybody, wherever they are on their spiritual journey. I love the answer so much because the impetus for this podcast was about making mysticism really practical. And I'm so much about embodiment. And that's part of why I really love your work and wanted to have you on. Yeah, you're such a contributor for the listeners who don't know about you yet to the research of the brain and how various mindfulness practices can really bring such wide rates of change to both the body and the brain. And so I just hope that we could start for you to just give a little synopsis. I know in your book, you've talked about it. I've seen you in videos about your life story, but it's so compelling. So I wondered if we could just do like a little synopsis of your your journey of how you went from being birthed into this world to being this critically acclaimed scientist and so passionate about mindfulness. Yeah, I think my passion really comes from the fact that it saved my life. And when I was 17, I had spinal fusion surgery. So mm. I had scoliosis and it had started progressing so much that my spine was going to puncture my lungs. And so we had to operate. And overnight, I went from this healthy, active teenager. I was captain of my volleyball team and my whole life was volleyball. I had just signed to play at Duke University. And literally overnight, I was not able to walk, lying in a hospital bed. And I was in the hospital bed for six months. I never played volleyball again. Mm. It was devastating. I became really depressed. I thought my life was over. I was in so much pain physically, but, but also so much pain emotionally. So many fears about the future. Will I ever walk again? Will I always be in pain? And also so many regrets. Like, I wish I'd done that, or if only I'd done this. And I was really torturing myself. And it was at that time my dad gave me a book. It's called Wherever You Go, There You Are by Dr. John Kabat-Zinn. And I remember the opening paragraph. It said, whatever has happened to you, it's already happened. The only thing that matters is now what? And it was as if this path opened up. Like, 
there's hope, there's a future. I don't have to stay stuck. And that really led me on this path. I started reading and studying everything I could about mindfulness. And a few years later, when I had healed enough, I went to Thailand to study at a monastery there. And my experience was so profound that when I came back to the U.S., I decided to pursue my Ph.D. and become a scientist and study this for the rest of my life. And that's what I've done. Amazing. Amazing how you turned that experience of such trauma into not only healing, but then offering as medicine to this world, which is just like mm-hmm. the ultimate, I feel like, part of being a modern mystic, right? That modern, how do we then serve? So with the expertise of yours, which is neuroplasticity, would you mind speaking about this concept for our audience, how the brain changes in response to our experience and exactly the nuances of how we have the power to change our own brain in doing so, our thought processes? Yeah, I think it's one of the most important discoveries of the last 400 years of brain science. It's definitely the most hopeful scientific discovery because basically up until the 1990s, we thought that our brain was static, that it couldn't change. And this was really depressing. It was like, oh, this is just who I am. I'm stuck. And what neuroplasticity teaches us is that we're never stuck. It's never too late, no matter what mistakes you've made, no matter what your past or what your current circumstances are. All of us have the power and choice to re-architect the very structure of our brain to be healthier, to be happier, to be of greater service. And it's a really hopeful message. It's amazing. And it's so much about our mind and our thoughts for the listeners, because what you're speaking to is like our literal brain changes I had Dr. Alyssa Eppel on, you know, when we talked about telomeres and all this. So friends who listen to that episode, go back and check that out. But this is scientifically proven now, like you're saying. And I love how you talk about, you know, what we practice goes stronger. I think you said you, in, in your book, uh, Rewire Your Mind, you heard a, a monk say that to some extent, mm-hmm. yes. And that important, truly powerful mantra and affirmation and knowledge that what we practice, so we can do that internally with our thoughts. So often we think, oh, it's just the yoga or it's just, you know, the outer actions but it has to do with what we're thinking and the way that we think about things, right? And that phrase is so important, what you practice grows stronger, because it's both for the good and for the bad. You know, it's something that people really need to keep in mind that if we're practicing these ruminating thoughts and these negative thoughts constantly, we're carving that pathway. If we're practicing gratitude or appreciation, we're carving that pathway. And one thing I like to be really clear, especially with my patients, because as a clinical psychologist, I work with a lot of people who have a lot of negative thoughts and a lot of hard emotions. And so when I explain neuroplasticity to them and what you practice grows stronger, they're like, oh shit, I don't want to keep practicing my depression or I don't want to keep practicing my anxiety. And so I want to be really clear with people listening, bringing your mindful presence to your sadness or to your fear or to your pain is very different. You're practicing a different neural pathway than if you're just hijacked by it. So if you're lost in your ruminations and your depression, yes, you are growing that. But if you're bringing your kindness and your compassion and your mindfulness to sweetheart, you're in pain right now, you're sad right now, that is practicing something very different, something healthy that you want to grow. Yeah, that's such an important point. And many of my listeners, because I'm a tantrika yogi, and I've spoken about this before, but in case certain people haven't heard listening, in yoga, it's called samskaras. 
these pathways, these grooves. This is the Sanskrit word. And I love how you're speaking about that because the yogic texts and the, a lot of the Buddhist texts, I don't know if you're familiar with these specifically, but talk about how it's like a sword and butter and you lay, you know, cut the butter and you make this pathway, this groove. And then the milk of consciousness, where does it go? It goes into the groove. And like you're saying so articulately and scientifically, which is so powerful, that when we practice the witness state, right? When we watch our thoughts, this mindfulness practice, oh, this is, and even labeling, you know, this is depression, this is anxiety and and do that. We're literally making another cut, another pathway. So it's, and then the consciousness goes into that pathway. Yes. And what's so exciting is that there's something called neuronal pruning. So we're pruning these neural pathways. So every time I choose to go on a new pathway, I'm pruning the old pathway, neuronal pruning. So, I mean, it's such an elegant system Mm. and we're designed to support ourselves in this healing journey. That is, I'm like legally high right now hearing that word. I've never heard that word, (laughs) neuronal pruning. That's amazing. And so there's just that continued refinement and elevation when we do the practices. I'd love for you, please, to talk, in your opinion, a little bit more about your understanding and experience of the difference between meditation and mindfulness. I'm a coach and I'm a meditation teacher and I'm always talking about this with people and I love your take on this. So could you share with the audience? Because I think it's confusing to a lot of people and would be helpful. Yes. So mindfulness and meditation are distinct. Meditation is the practice. It's the exercise. It's the kind of going to the gym and lifting weights so that we can grow our mindfulness. Mindfulness is a way of being. It's a way of being present. It's a way of paying attention. And what I always like to say is attention is your most valuable resource. It's not money. We all know that. But it's not even time. We, all, we often think it's time. But if your mind is wandering all the time, it's not really a benefit, no matter how much time you have. So it's really about your attention. Can I be present? And what we've discovered is that on average, this was a study done at Harvard, on average, our minds wander 47% of the time. So that's about half of your life you're missing. So part of mindfulness is really this mental fitness training, right, that we engage in. And meditation is part of that practice so that we can grow this presence. That's that's amazing and so profound. And, you know, when you put it in the statistical terms, it's just like mind-blowing, right, how much of our life we're actually missing if we're not practicing the art of paying attention. And I love what you just said about your attention is your greatest currency. And that's so brilliant because even in the practice of your attention, your health improves. So like people often say health is, you know, and it is such a great boon and blessing, you know, but really that's a brilliant thing to say because the attention actually implicates every arena of life, including health. It impacts your relationships and the quality you bring to them right? In every arena. So, so good. This model of mindfulness for me is so important to understand that it's really about our attention and then it even goes more nuanced. So it's about why are you paying attention and how are you paying attention? So mindfulness that is all three elements, which is your intention. This is why you pay attention, your attention and your attitude. And so For me, mindfulness is kind of like the co-arising of all three of these ingredients, which is really knowing why am I paying attention? What do I care about? That's your intention helps you zero in. And then your attitude is about paying attention with kindness, with curiosity. When we pay attention in a judgmental way, judgment and shame, they shut down the learning centers of the brain. 
So it really limits us in our ability to, well, obviously to learn, to think clearly and to heal. Yeah, that's so profound. And I love what you said, because I think that can be really applied to meditation. I don't know how you feel and what your experience has been, but me being a coach and I had a yoga studio forever and taught meditation, you know, daily full schedule of meditation classes. And so many people struggle with meditation. And then so many people are like, oh, I just can't meditate, right? They tried. And I think mm-hmm. you're really inspiring um, delineation of how to think about this in the way of, okay, why am I meditating? Okay, what's my intention, you know, and et cetera. So can you talk about that, how you could actually apply it to the practice of meditation? Because I think that's very applicable to help people out of the chasm of feeling like they they can't meditate or they don't want to meditate. Yes. And I'm so important that you bring this up because almost everyone I've ever worked with over the last, you know, two decades has said, I just can't meditate. And what I realize is that our definition of meditation is wrong. That meditation is about intentionally bringing your mind to the present moment and then being curious about what happens. And sometimes what happens is your mind wanders. That doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. It means you have to learn how to bring it back. And your intention is what really helps you. So intentions are often not fully understood. So your intention, as I said before, helps you zero in on what's important. It helps you really deeply inquire into what do I care about? But our intentions are not just mystical, psychological, vague concepts. Our intentions are neurochemical. When we set an intention, it sets in motion a whole cascade of neurochemistry. We, When we set an intention, and it has to be something we care about, when we set an intention that we care about, it releases dopamine. Dopamine is the neuromodulator of motivation and learning. Dopamine then turns into acetylcholine, which turns on the learning centers and our attention pathways. Acetylcholine helps us focus our attention. So if I set my intention about something I care about, my body literally creates this chemical cocktail that helps me move in that direction. That is just amazing and so elucidating to hear about and so validating that, you know, science has proven Mm -hmm. now all of this and, and just wildly exciting. And there's so many incredible benefits, as you know, you and I have alluded to with the meditation and with the mindfulness practices, such as, you know, reducing uh, levels of stress hormone, cortisol, enhancing immune and cardiovascular function. Um, You know, what are other ones in addition to stress, in addition to better sleep is, I think, one of them, of course. Absolutely. Some of the research we did at Stanford clearly showed that mindfulness practices are one of the most effective treatments for insomnia. They help you fall asleep faster, sleep more deeply, wake up more refreshed. You also mentioned earlier uh, Dr. Alyssa Eppel's research on telomeres, and I think that's one of some of the most compelling research showing that mindfulness practice increases telomerase, which is the enzyme that grows our telomeres. So it really is one of the only practices we know that can slow down the process of aging. When you hear the benefits, and I don't know how hearing them, everyone is not running out meditating. You know what I mean? Like, because that's what everyone's chasing, right? Whether it's the, you know, I want to look younger, which is obviously like, you know, on a, a lot of superficiality, and yet it's very real. The majority of people, right? I want to feel better. I want to sleep better. I want my relationships yeah. to be better, right? These are all benefits of the meditative and mindfulness practices. Well, I think one of the things that blocks us is a lack of self-love. So many of us don't feel worthy of taking time to care for ourselves. And 
I think even sometimes when we do approach meditation, it's kind of with like a, a whip of like, I need to do this. It's like one more thing on the to-do list. And I don't think it's beneficial when we do it that way. I think meditation, it's really an act of love and it's an act of love toward ourselves and toward the world that what the research shows is that people who practice mindfulness and compassion meditation, they are better citizens of the world, that these aren't selfish practices. And so to really respect your own self-care and to know that that's the best way you can care for the world. That's really, really, really important. And I love how you bust a lot of the meditative mindfulness myths, like, oh, it's selfish or, oh, it's, you know, in your book, you talk about those things, you know, these kind of Mm -hmm. common misconceptions, if you will. So people listening hear that, right? When we take care of ourselves, we can serve the world better and meditation and mindfulness practices. It's now proven that those individuals doing that are actually actively supporting the world in a more positive way. I love that so much. And you are also speaking to compassion and empathy, you know, for yourself. And you, you write a lot about those practices. And I feel like in the scientific world, I haven't read like everyone in your field as you have, but I've read a lot. And I feel like your work really stands out in that way. Meaning as a scientist, not just like Tishnat Han's work or some of the, you know, well-known Buddhist work that are often integrated into the mindfulness sector. And so could you speak about that as a scientist and just that convergence and confluence of those ideas and how they impact our body physiologically and otherwise? Absolutely. I think it's really important. I think the science, it helps with the actual practice. You know, I love that you said the modern mystic is an embodiment, right? And for us to embody this, we have to understand it. And so, for example, we brought up this idea of of thinking self-compassion is selfish, right? And when I can show my patients the research that shows that people who practice self-compassion are rated by their spouses, by their children, by their colleagues as more generous, as more caring, it really, it kind of explodes this idea that it's selfish, right? Or people who say, oh, well, if I'm compassionate with myself, then I'm just going to become like a self-indulgent couch potato and I'm never going to exercise and I'm going to eat Oreos all day long. And then I can show them the data, the research that shows that Here's a study at UC Berkeley that showed that women who were trying to lose weight were taught self-compassion and they were much more likely to exercise and to eat healthy than the comparison group because self-compassion, when you care for yourself, you take care of yourself. In those ways, the science is helpful. Another way that I think the science is really compelling is you mentioned empathy versus compassion. And for me, this has been one of the most... uh, interesting new discoveries that at the University of Switzerland, they discovered that empathy and compassion look different in the brain. So when I empathize with someone who's suffering, the pain centers of my brain light up, which makes sense. I see someone stub their toe and I'm like, ooh, ouch, right? And my mirror neurons light up and I actually at a subacute level experience pain. If you imagine that you are always around people who are suffering, if you're a therapist like me or a caregiver, a healer in some way, you can imagine that's not such good news because at some point you're going to burn out. You can't just kind of subacute firing pain all the time. What was so compelling about this research is that compassion actually lights up the reward and positive centers of the brain. It actually activates the neural circuitry of joy. So when you shift your empathy into compassion, 
you actually are protecting yourself and better able to serve and help someone else. That's amazing. That's blowing my mind. And and so <laughs> many of our listeners are empaths. I have an episode mm-hmm. called, I forget the exact title, but I think it's called Sensitivity is Sexy, HSPs. I go into the differences about these things and that episode blew up. Like I had thousands of listeners, tons of DMs about that because so many people were experiencing that. And that is such a helpful point, the difference and the distinguishing between those two chemically even. Wow. Exactly. And so often, you know, people who are highly sensitive or empathic were told like, well, you have to just not get so involved. You have to not care and you have to detach. And that's what the medical community has done, right? They say, don't, don't be so involved. That doesn't really work. That just costs a lot of energy and also hurts, you know, the people you're with. The actual way to do this is to use the empathy as a signal transform it into compassion. And then you're in this self-protective suit of goodness and you're able to serve others. So you're protecting yourself and others. And one of the definitions that I love of compassion, it's Tibetan. And it says, compassion is considered incomplete if it doesn't include ourselves. Mm. That true compassion always includes yourselves. And that an, a compassionate act that causes harm to you is not even considered compassionate. Everyone talk about great, healthy boundaries and wisdom. With that, what are your top two tips to transliterate that though? Like what should people do? Because like I know a lot of people like me who are highly empathetic and highly sensitive or be like, okay, well, how do I do that? Is your mind the panacea meditation? Because then we witness, okay, I'm feeling empathetic. And then in the practicing of the seeing and witnessing, it transliterates into compassion. What, what are your thoughts about that? Great question. Right. It's it's very easy in theory. It's a little harder to put in practice. <laughs> I will say that I spend actually whole courses at the university training the therapists who are in my graduate program in these practices. So I just want to be clear that this isn't something you're just going to like walk away from. But let me. So the first step, just like you said, is naming the emotion that you're feeling right to just name. I'm afraid or I am feeling the pain of this person or whatever it is. So it's called name it to tame it. When you mm-hmm. name an emotion, it calms down your physiology. That This was a study at UCLA. They show that when you name your emotion, it calms you down. So just like you said, the first step is just to know I'm in pain, right? Then what you want to do is instead of focusing on the pain that the other person is experiencing or that you're experiencing, you focus on your love, your care. So let's take, for example, my son. Okay. I'll give you a simple example. He was really, really struggling at one point. As a mother, when you hear your son struggling, right, it just crushes you, right? The empathy is very strong. (laughs) Feeling his sadness, his loneliness, his depression, and I am feeling the pain. And instead of staying there, I take a breath and I think about how much I love him. The reason I'm in pain is because I want this boy to be happy and I want him to be healthy and to feel safe and loved. And instead of focusing on the pain, I start sending my compassion. May you be peaceful. May your pain pass. May you trust your good heart. And as I'm sending compassion, I'm feeling more empowered. I'm feeling my energy rise up. Okay. So empathy lets us know there's a problem but we need to use it as a gateway to compassion. That's so good. And so people, you could practice doing what Shauna's saying, like come up with two or three phrases for people who haven't done this practice before, because there are going to be some experts who have been you know, meditating for 30 years listening and some people who are very new. So you could come up perhaps with a practice like may so-and-so feel supported, may so-and-so feel loved, may so-and-so feel free. 
And you write that in your phone so that when it, you get triggered, you can just j- write, you've got it if you're not an expert like you are in this. When you get triggered, right, you go into trauma response, you can't think of those phrases, you're just holding on. So it's really important to have them written down, like you said. And in fact, one of the chapters in my book in Good Morning, I Love, love You, that. and also in Rewire Your Mind, because they're the same book. They just have different titles. But one of the chapters really goes into empathy versus compassion and then has the practice written down with different phrases that you can use. A lot of people said, I also have it on Audible. And they said they like it better because then they can actually hear me saying it Mm. to them. They don't have to be reading it while they're practicing. Yeah, beautiful. So for the listeners, because I always start to, I always close out every guest I have with an offering, with a benediction, with a meditation. And I know at some point soon you have to go. So would you mind in your beautiful voice, because you have a very soothing voice. So I'm I'm not surprised everyone asks you about that. Would you mind making that your offering? Like, that what would people say, you know, what were things that people then could listen and people will rewind this and listen to you. Cause I always have people do that. Absolutely. And, and I'll also send you a link on my website where they can download the loving kindness meditation and mindfulness practices that are professionally recorded, but for the on the spot in the moment. So the invitation first is place your hand on your heart and just name the emotion you're feeling. So fear, sadness, overwhelm, whatever it is, feel your breath. We're not pushing it away. We're not getting rid of it. And then choosing to refocus our attention on what our caring heart wishes for this person who's suffering. So may their suffering pass. I care about your suffering. I'm with you. I care about you. May you be safe and protected. And just feel your good heart, your caring. So instead of focusing on their pain, we focus on our love for this person. And our love is what protects us and is able to serve them. So take one more breath in and out. You can put your hand back in your lap. You can let your eyes open if they were closed. Mm, Thank you. That was really, really exquisite and really empowering. And I just had this incredible aha moment because I've heard so many different amazing, you know, meditators, realized beings, quote unquote, you know, you read spiritual autobiographies, et cetera, of these wonderful wise beings who talk about how blessing people, how really offering blessings to people makes a difference. And that's a real practice. And when I've shared that with different people, some people receive that and are like, well, what do you mean? Or it doesn't really help. And I understand that skepticism. And you right now, how you just described it in that practice, really crystallized that concept. Blessing may not be the word that some of the listeners will want to use, but you just literally put that in such practical terms and that's what you're doing. And I felt my physiology change. Exactly. At the very least, it's helping you. Yeah, right, right. But at the very least, it's changing your physiology. And what I always ask people is, who are you when you're sending love versus who are you when you're worrying and in fear? You're a different person. And so if we're taking care of my mental health first, because again, the definition of compassion is it has to always include myself. That is the heart, is I have to come from a place of peace. Yes. And even the words that you shared, listeners, try them on yourself. 
because that's I started to do halfway through. I thought, oh my gosh, for myself, this is also yeah. an amazing practice. So just to encompass that other really poignant and profound teaching about taking care of yourself, people can listen and use it on themselves. How I stay start with yourself and then I go love to someone that. else. In the book, I have two whole chapters on self-compassion before we ever get to compassion and empathy for other people and really learning how to acknowledge your own pain and then bring care to your pain, compassion to your pain. I love that. Well, that word, compassion, I think it means like with, you know, with calm, obviously passion. And it's just so important to have passion for yourself, for your life, for your practices and so I love that because sometimes I feel like the word compassion, the meditative and mindfulness group, there's a feeling that's beautiful, but a very kind of almost like passive. But then I always like remind people, no, it has passion in it, the word passion. And you really, you really embody that. So I love that so much. Where else can folks find out about your work? You have a new book. Yeah. I have a new book. In fact, I have a copy here. I don't think people can see this because it's audio, but I'll show you because it's so we have. Cute. We just got it up on YouTube recently. So our YouTube watchers or, or go to YouTube. It's Modern Mystic Mindful Movement. <laughs> it's called Good Morning, I Love You, Violet. So here's what's interesting. I've always worked with adults. I'm a clinical psychologist and all of my research has been with adults. However, as I started going down the rabbit hole of neuroplasticity, and learning about the way the child's brain develops and how sponge-like and just plastic it is. It's really extraordinary. In fact, the first seven years of a child's life, they're in a theta brain state, which means they're basically hypnotizable. And so what I realized was, why aren't we imprinting these resources of mindfulness and self-compassion that will serve them for the rest of their lives? And so I created this beautiful children's book with an amazing illustrator, Susie Schaefer. And it's really a way to teach self-compassion to children in this kind of fun, spunky, colorful way. So I'm so excited about it. I've actually never been more excited about another project. Talk about passion, because I think this really has a possibility of impacting at such a bigger scale. Such a bigger scale. And I feel like in my generation and our generation, you know, now we've got all these people who, like myself, have been practicing perhaps from when they were young. And if not, which is more unusual, I think, still, but many of them have practiced as adults. So they all have kids and then grandkids at some point soon, right? And so this is the new earth, right, to birth. And that's really, yes. really so exciting. Congratulations. The cover looks really, really fun and sweet. It's beautiful. And I hope everyone goes out and gets it for a gift as for someone, you know, anywhere. That's the beauty of it. I told my friends who all their kids are older. I'm like, well, then buy one and give it to the library or give it to a school or children's hospital. Like this is, it's such a colorful, fun gift. So I'm really loving That's a it. great idea. And for those listeners in time and space, the holidays are coming up, believe it or not. So there, there'll be friends who are listening in real time. Get the book, offer it. It's a really big gift that you can give when you share it. And I will say anyone who can't afford it, you can send me an email to my website that we've raised a lot of money to be donating it. So we're donating books to underserved communities, to children's hospitals, to libraries. So please, I want really everyone to have this book. That's so amazing and so compassionate in action, compassion in action. So thank you, everyone. Yeah, definitely email Shauna and uh, my members are getting her free loving kindness meditation. So 
all of you monthly mystic members. You can go to modernmystic.love if you're not a member, and you can get many gifts from my extraordinary guests, including Shauna Shapiro's beautiful, beautiful meditation. I can't wait to check that out. So thank you for that. Mm, You're so welcome. Well, thank you so much. This has been such a joy. Thank you for looming and threading together such profound ancient wisdom with your scientific research. Your practices and insight are just illuminative and really, really changing lives. So thank you for your work. Namaste. Namaste. Thank you for taking these words in. I hope they ground, inform, and inspire you on your journey of the mystic path. If you like what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever podcast platform you use. It is so appreciated. Also, check out my website, modernmystic.love, where you can find information about my very exciting monthly mystic membership. My members have unlimited access to a robust video library, which includes short videos that are easily digestible, sharing practical ways to integrate mystical living into your day-to-day life. These compelling videos cover topics such as how to ground, protect, and grow your energy, how to develop your psychic abilities, how to connect to your spirit team, shadow work, inner child work, tarot cards, lots of Western astrology, of course, in addition to syncing up with the rhythms of nature and so much more. I've gotten so much positive feedback that these videos are game changers for folks. Also included in the membership are over 100 alignment-based yoga classes of all different levels, meditation and breathwork classes, so you can work from the inside out or the outside in and up-level yourself as you become the next version of you. Not to mention, my mystic members get all sorts of bonus content and discounts from my visionary podcast guests. So check out modernmystic.love and take a peek there as there's a free sampling of some videos waiting for you. Lastly, if you are looking for some conscious conversation and compelling community, check out also our private Modern Mystic Podcast Facebook group. Keep on meeting the present moment where the magic lives, one breath at a time. Namaste. Namaste.